0: Welcome to Free Thoughts from Libertarianism.org and the Cato Institute. I'm Aaron Ross Powell, editor of Libertarianism.org and a research fellow here at the Cato Institute.
1: And I'm Trevor Burris, a research fellow at the Cato Institute Center for Constitutional Studies.
0: Joining us today is Edward H. Crane, beloved founder and president emeritus of the Cato Institute. I guess we'll start at the very beginning. How did you become a libertarian?
2: Well, uh, I used to say and it can't really be true that I've always been, I can't remember when I wasn't a libertarian but I guess I started out as a uh, Goldwater Republican, you know, conservative uh, but as soon as I read libertarian stuff whether it was, you know, Ayn Rand or uh, Isabel Patterson, uh, the sense of liberty being across the board and and doesn't – Stop at the economic border it always made sense to me and and so I guess I've always been a libertarian I, my father was a conservative doctor who uh, didn't really know much about public policy and my mother didn't care about it but I always was attracted to the libertarian perspective
1: and you grew up in uh, California correct
2: well, I was raised there it's not clear how much I grew up, but I was uh, Uh, In Southern California and uh, went to high school there and and then uh, went to the University of Redlands for my freshman year uh, and then on to Berkeley. Redlands said they would not kick me out if I did not come back and –
1: they would what did you do <laughs> well, they had
2: rules you couldn 't have women or liquor in your uh, in your dorm oh that 's horrendous, yeah, uh, either one would have done me in, and, <laughs> uh, so I went to Berkeley, where I was you know I was a radical at Redlands at Berkeley. I was just another one of the guys
1: <laughs> and then uh, you got involved. How did you get involved with the movement so to speak actual professional libertarianism i don 't think
2: before I came around there was a a professional uh, libertarian job out there. I was the, kind of the first employee but
1: uh, … Trevor Well, at least people working for a broader – the libertarian party. Yeah, Trevor Well,
2: I, I I became a member of Youth for Goldwater at Berkeley which was kind of a small group as you might imagine <laughs> and I, I was a precinct captain for two precincts in, in Berkeley and uh, I, we got six votes in one precinct and seven in the other. I knew the names of all the votes. I was kind of a fanatic Goldwater guy. Although I, I was less enthusiastic when he flipped on Social Security and, um, uh, but, you know, I really admired the guy. When you think about, um, the end of the New Deal being maybe 1952, um, it's remarkable that within eight years, the, um, the number one political book in America was The Conscience of a Conservative which really uh, still holds together today if you read it but it was a repudiation of the new deal across the board and uh, that's why it's uh, you know there are many reasons why it's a shame that Kennedy was killed but they he and goldwater were planning to debate issues go around the country together they liked each other and uh, and that would have been a nice thing to see i mean kennedy would have won anyway i think but certainly once he was Killed Gold, Goldwater himself said he knew at that moment that he Goldwater would never be president of the United States.
0: So I guess before you became the first professional libertarian, I suppose what did at that time? What did the libertarian movement look like?
2: Well, I, I went to the first uh, uh, Libertarian Party convention and uh, I think it was
1: in yeah, Denver, which is yeah. my hometown. So. Uh,
2: and uh, it was at the Radisson Hotel. Uh, in June of, of uh, 1972, and I walked into that place. And as a libertarian, I've always known it was appropriate to be tolerant of alternative lifestyles. But until I walked into that room, I really had no idea how many <laughs> alternatives there were. I've told that story before, but I mean, it's uh, there were there were Randians, you know, with black capes and long cigarette holders there were gold bugs draped in gold they were anarchists and black and uh, but god damn it they were all people who believed in liberty and I think there were 85 of them and they were they were very excited that they were from 13 states it was you know you get it and um, it was an interesting group of people I, I went up to the suite with about a dozen people uh John Hospers, who was the nominee and, uh, and uh, was there while they were writing the Statement of Principles, which I think has kind of gone by the side. But uh, he had to sign this thing to become a member of the Libertarian Party. But John Hospers was a remarkable man, a very well-respected philosopher at the University of Southern California and a tenured guy. But he took a big risk to do this and run for president. His running mate was a gal named Tony Nathan who passed away just last year. Uh, she was a wonderful person and uh, she was a radio broadcaster and um, I got a call. I was working for uh, Scudder, Stevenson, Clark, an investment firm in Los Angeles and I got a call from her and said, she said, Ed, I need a campaign manager. And I said, Tony, to begin with, you're running for vice president <laughs> and beyond that, you're on the ballot in two states. So, I you know with all the odds are against you. Yes. Yeah, you're not going to (laughs) win. And she was in uh, let me see Colorado and Washington State, I think,
1: which are now the two marijuana states. Well, let
2: me see, we got started early there. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, she was um, um, uh, insistent, and uh, she said, "You don't have to do anything. I just need your name on the stationery." I said, "Okay." So I was so if. If you're ever asked, uh, who the campaign manager for the first woman in American history to receive an electoral college vote was, it's me, old Ed Crane, um, because she did win. And I was in a car with, uh, John Hospers going to some speech in Los Angeles, because we were both there. And, uh, and he says, and he says, you know, we're going to get, uh, uh, electoral college vote. And uh I said, No, you're not, John. And he said, Yeah, no, I just talked to this guy, Roger McBride, and he's a Nixon elector in Virginia and sure enough, uh Roger voted uh making Tony Nathan the first woman in history to receive an electoral college vote and making the Libertarian Party a third place finisher in the uh Electoral College, anyway.
1: Now, did that actually? Was that a story outside of, of your life, your libertarian the, the world? Then was it a story that this elector had defected? Yeah, I can't remember that happening in my life. Maybe it
2: has. No, Roger had actually written a thesis in, in college on uh, um, on how the Constitution allows electors to um, to um, vote their conscience. They don't have to even if they're committed, they don't have to vote for that person. And he sent a copy of the it was a book, I forget what the title was, and he sent it to all the Virginia electors, so they had been forewarned, he felt. And um, so he did that. And then
0: how does a guy who writes that a thesis like that end up getting chosen as an elector? <laughs> well because <laughs> it seems like the people who choose made a bad choice. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I don't
2: think that, I don't think electors are vetted. I mean, right. you look for contribution levels and that sort of thing. So um, that, that's that's that, how I got started.
1: And then and then so after the seventy two campaign ended, or the, uh, you found yourself uh, with the LP, the Libertarian Party, or were you- yeah, no,
2: I I uh, coming out of the convention in Denver, I was uh, I I lost uh, uh, coin flip and became uh, vice chairman of the Libertarian Party of California and there were 20 um, regions and this is information that nobody wants to hear about but you ask me and I was in charge of 12 regions and I would take my little 240Z and I went all over Southern California and I think by the time I left, they had – 10 of the regions had their own newsletters and we were really getting something. I was was, uh, excited that – that um, Hospers got 980 write-in votes in California. I had no idea there were 980 libertarians in the world but – and to go to the trouble of doing that and how did they find out he was a write-in candidate? Uh, That kind of encouraged me and so uh, I – I guess it was in uh, Dallas, I was elected national chairman of the party. you know, I had gotten in it because I thought it was a libertine party, and by the time I found out I was national chairman, it was it was too late to get out. And I, I, uh, the party had been set up by David and Susan Nolan, and they are very good people and famous Nolan chart and everything, but they were not good organizers. And uh, when I took over, they handed me a shoebox with, uh, you know, three by five cards in it, and there maybe was a couple hundred. And uh, they sent the newsletter only to people whose dues were uh, paid up. so maybe one hundred and fifty people got the newsletter and i I immediately you know went to a, a newsprint and we sent the newsletter to any list we could find and and started to grow the organization. did pretty well, I think we by nineteen seventy six um, McBride uh, had said to me that if you quit your lucrative investment job and become national chairman, all, all run for president in 1976. And, and, um, you know, not only did he wear a coat and tie, but he had his own private airplane and, uh, a DC three, which is a little scary, but, uh, uh, I thought that was cool. So I did, I was, uh, by then I was with Alliance Capital Management Corporation and, uh, I was the youngest vice president in the firm, and I gave all that up um, which my wife says it was a big mistake because uh, you could have made all that money, and uh, I'd like to point out if I hadn't done that I never would have met you <laughs> but I maybe that's what she meant that it was
1: uh well also we she, wouldn't, she, we wouldn't be sitting here now either. right yeah
2: anyway so i i uh ran uh, McBride's campaign out of uh, Washington in 76. Aaron
0: Powell While we're still on the – talking about the LP, maybe we could take this as an opportunity to clear up a confusion that I get on Facebook and Twitter. People will ask questions of libertarianism.org's Twitter account thinking that we are the LP. and so. What's the difference? Is there a difference between the Libertarian Party, libertarianism with a capital L, and the Libertarian movement or libertarianism in general with a lowercase L?
2: Well, Beck, when I was running uh, uh, the uh, Libertarian Party, it was just libertarianism. I mean, we the foreign policy and civil liberties was all a big part of what we were doing, and uh, um, so no, I don't think there's a difference. I, I mean, the the cards are so stacked against third parties in this country that uh, you know I was uh, naïve to think uh, – I, I honestly thought I could create a third party and uh, yeah, I still think that it, it could have happened. And when, when Ed Clark ran in 1980, we got on the ballot in all 50 states which was a hell of an achievement back then. It's hard enough now but uh, back then it was next to impossible. You had to break many, many laws and petitioning and so forth to to get in there. But um, Howie Rich was uh, in charge of the uh, – he's one of the great grassroots organizers ever, uh, both in terms of what he did to get Ed Clark on the ballot in all 50 states but also uh, what he did with the term limits movement. But that's another story.
1: But libertarianism and the libertarian party are different things. That's the, I think that was Aaron's question. They're or at least we're not – a lot of people think Cato is actually – associated with the Libertarian Party in some way or has some sort of official arm of it but it, it's it's not we're not if people were wondering <laughs> no
2: no Cato is not i mean obviously a political party is going to act differently and do different things than a think tank will uh but i think uh, you know the philosophy uh, is the same i don't think there's any um, fundamental difference it's it's just that you can't be successful as a third party
1: in this country. So, um, so, we, so we got to seventy-six uh, with uh, the McBride campaign, and then you finished the McBride campaign.
2: By the way, McBride was on the ballot in thirty-one states, which was more than Gene McCarthy, who had almost really? got the Democratic nomination four years earlier. Yeah, interesting. And we it became up, good yeah. friends with Gene actually.
1: Oh, he's a he's a pillar in the campaign finance world
0: too. Of course, absolutely. Uh, what what's what was involved in getting on thirty one states I mean what sort of I well mean, you, you said have, it was complicated, but what sort of hoops does one have to jump through to get on well you
2: you'll you'll have some states where you have to get so many signatures in each county and it has to be and you have to have an elector from that county or an individual uh to collect the signatures that's where some breaking the law comes in and uh and and uh, are, are ridiculous like West Virginia had incredible uh numbers you had to and Maryland did to. Uh, that just made it next to impossible. We had uh, – I, I remember once uh, uh, we got a call from uh, North Carolina where um, the authorities had arrested the guy in charge of our petitioning there because he was behind and uh, and we were all yelling at the people in the states to make sure you get your signatures in time. And so he decided to speed things up. He would uh, – Fake names, and uh, and his brilliant idea was he's going to take names out of the phone book for lawyers because they probably are registered, and uh, and, and so this secretary is going through the things. She said, you know, I don't I don't think Judge so and so would have signed this petition, and so they demanded that this guy uh, give a public apology. They were quite nice about it, actually. They could have just said you're not on the ballot and. And we're going to arrest you for sixty days or something, uh, but they gave this guy a chance to publicly apologize. Rather than do that, he jumped off a bridge, and uh, you know, being a libertarian, he didn't kill himself. But it uh, it was kind of a humorous uh, thing. We wait, wait, eventually wait. got on the ballot there.
1: What do you mean he jumped off a bridge? To, to kill himself. To kill himself. Yeah. He, oh, okay. He'd he didn't kill inept, himself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But oh, being a libertarian, he was inept, so that's right. why he failed at killing Do I himself. You have to explain all this. <laughs> I was, I was just a little confused there for a second. <laughs> so, and after seventy six, uh, Cato starts in seventy seven. Um,
2: Cato started in nineteen seventy seven. I had, uh, um, you know, I can't talk about Charles Koch, but I, I will say that. Uh, I met him through Roger McBride. They were both members of the Mont Pelerin Society. And Roger said, you need to meet this guy in Wichita who's quite wealthy. Not quite as wealthy as he is today, but still substantial. And so I did, and uh, he and I hit it off, and, and, uh, um, he said, uh, you know, he was impressed with what we did with McBride. We we ran like five network TV ads and you and got on the ballot and all those things and put out literature. It was fairly well done. Uh, and um, so he said, what would it take to keep you in the, in the movement? And uh, I said, well, I've, I've been impressed here in Washington with the leverage that Brookings and AEI have. And it'd be, you know, Brookings is just a, a, a typical liberal institution and AEI is, was not even conservative then. It was just pro-business. Uh, but I, I said it would be great to have a libertarian think tank and so he, he talked me into uh, to uh, agreeing to start the Cato Institute and uh, I said, um, you know, if you're going to have a libertarian think tank, you don't want me to run it because I'm going back to San Francisco and uh, it should be in New York or Washington. at being significantly smarter than I am, said, "No, no, we'll set it up in uh, in San Francisco and see how it goes." And knowing full well that I myself would bring it back out, which I did in <laughs> 1981. Um, but that's how that's how Cato got started.
1: Now, what about um, the role? Uh, some of our listeners would be interested in, and in me too, about Murray Rothbard. And how he his got involved with Cato originally, and like how you first met him, and that, that
2: well, he was a you know Murray was a hero to anyone who was a libertarian back then, and including Charles Koch. And so he was actually asked to be on the board of the Cato Institute, his original um, uh, board member. And uh, Murray is the guy who uh, came up with the name Cato, uh, named after uh, Cato's letters which in turn were kind of indirectly named after Cato the Younger but um, it, 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 philosophically it's a good name since we want to see a, uh, a renaissance of the ideas that energized the American Revolution and Cato's letters were read by Jefferson and Payne and, and Sam Adams and some pretty radical libertarian types in the American Revolution. We, the name fit fits. So the, the problem is to make a logo. Out of CATO, you have to use all caps, or it looks weird. With a capital C and a small a, that says more than you guys need to know. But, <laughs> but I, but so people think it's a Central Atlantic Treaty Organization
0: or something. Crane and the others. Crane and, and the others yeah. is,
2: is what it originally was meant to be. But, <laughs> but no, that's so that's how that got started.
0: And, but Murray Murray left Cato. Oh yeah,
2: Murray Murray was a great guy to have as a friend. He was so funny and full of life and, uh, uh, but he was not a good guy to have as an enemy and uh, Murray um, was very keen on Inquiry magazine which was one of Cato's first projects and Bill Evers was the editor and it was aimed toward the left. It, it was really well done but it, was, uh, it turns out the left is not that interested in libertarianism as much as you'd think. I mean, when you think about well, we should agree on civil liberties, we should agree on on foreign policy, but you know, the left is as interventionist in foreign policy as anybody these days. And uh and uh, in terms of civil liberties, I mean, they don't even believe in free speech anymore.
0: It also feels like they the left is rather willing to let their views about economic liberty trump anything else. Yeah, so no. so they'll set civil liberties issues aside In order to Mm -hmm. regulate and regulate, yeah, Burrus,
2: Jr.: the the intellectuals there see no difference between economic power and political power. To them, it's all coercive, and that's just a fundamental mistake. It's much more, uh, you know, it's much better if you live in a society where you can tell Ford after their hundreds of millions of dollars telling us to buy Edsel's, you can tell Ford to shove it but you know when the government tells you to do something you got to pretty much do it so it's it's a distinction the left doesn't make and it's really uh, a shame that they can't see that
1: you mentioned that uh, that murray is great as a friend and horrible as an enemy and he he was he had that sort of purity strength, vein in him of trying to decide who was against him i think that probably murray would have said the same thing about you in his own way right like that was a got, got pretty high level of animosity to there uh, in the eighties. He didn't
2: like me. That's, that's you know, that seems to happen to me from time to time. <laughs> but Murray, you know, uh, Evers was the editor of Inquiry magazine, and and they thought they died and gone to heaven. That that was their goal was to reach the left. That was always, and Evers himself was from Stanford and was just. Obsessed with what his Marxist academic friends would think if he said this this way or that way, and uh, and but it was draining all the funds out of Cato, and the readership was not that big, so we uh, shut it down. And uh, and when they got word of that, then uh, Murray um, talked David Thoreau, who runs the Independent Institute now, in Oakland. Uh, um, Got He was uh, in charge of academic affairs for Cato and uh, a bright, very, bright, bright guy. Um, they got him to call Charles Koch to uh, talk Charles into firing me so that they can keep Inquiry Magazine going. And as soon as he hung up with Charles, Charles called me and said, Ed, I just thought you'd like to know that uh, your guy Thoreau there wants you to be fired. And so I walked into Thoreau's office and said – David you're fired, and uh, he immediately understood what had happened. He said, "Well, can't we still work together?" And I said, uh, "No, we cannot you know actions have consequences, and you're gone.
1: who were the first employees of, of Cato other than you on the day on day one when the doors opened well there was
2: there was uh, Ralph Rako and Bill evers, and then uh, you know some secretarial help, but it was very small and, uh, uh, and we got our Nice offices and and um, got off and running and the magazine was a good good product uh, and we started gradually doing public policy work.
0: And how big was it by the time you moved to DC?
2: Well, uh, when we moved to DC, we were we were getting rid of uh, Inquiry Magazine, we're scaling it down, so I, I you know a lot of people just stayed in. Uh, in San Francisco, I don't think there was more than five people that went to the, but we soon had 20 people or so. Uh, and we had this townhouse on Second Street that was really terrific. One of the neat things about it is one of the few townhouses in, in, uh, on Capitol Hill that had a nice backyard. And so we would have, we could squeeze about 80 people into the dining room, living room area. For forums, and then afterwards have a white wine reception, and it became a, a kind of a cool place to go in Washington, and it helped us uh, early on
1: quite well. Did you feel like the early days of the Reagan administration had libertarian possibilities to it that were maybe quickly those hopes were quickly dashed?
2: Mm, I didn't appreciate Reagan back then as much as I do now, uh, but um, you know we were in competition. I. I, uh, when I was running the uh, McBride campaign, I wrote a letter to Reagan, who at the time was calling himself a libertarian and talking about how libertarianism is the essence of conservatism or republicanism, I think. And I listed, you know, half a dozen things that he says and believes that weren't libertarian. And he wrote me a very thin-skinned letter. i got to find it. I, I know it's around somewhere. Um, yeah, you should find that.
1: <laughs> if it's handwritten by Ronald Reagan. That yeah, would be, yeah, it, it was. <laughs>
2: and uh, Sam Husbands, who passed away a couple of years ago, was a dear friend of mine and on Cato's board. But also Sam was a, um, uh, a good friend of Reagan's and in fact was uh, Reagan's uh, – what do you call it or when um, uh, people come in from out of town and
1: um, house guest? No, <laughs>
2: director of uh, oh, uh, uh, not etiquette, but whatever. You uh, mean
1: inside the White House? You mean
2: no, no. When he was governor of California, oh. uh, reception protocol,
1: protocol. Okay,
2: he was in charge of protocol, and, w- and in fact, we got when I took over the Libertarian Party and and and, and had moved to San Francisco, I had got. Uh, um, Sam Husbands to agree to quit the Republican Party and join the Libertarians and also a guy who was Reagan's uh, um, appointment secretary, Ned Hutchinson. Uh, Ned uh, was quitting the Reagan administration. Ned loved Reagan but he said, you know, the guy just doesn't care who works for him. Somebody will come in the office and of course Ned was in charge of, of who they appointed to positions." And and somebody would come to me and say, uh, well, you know, uh, Bill Kerry, uh I met him at a cocktail party, really nice guy. He should be, you know, insurance commissioner or something. <laughs> and Re- Reagan would come in and, and, and tell this story and, um, and Ned would say, but Governor, we don't know him. No, no. You well, know, I'm, I'm assured he's a good guy. So they filled up and that happened clearly when he was president too. I mean he pointed a guy uh, as a secretary of education – who uh, campaigned to create the Department of Education, which he campaigned against, which yeah. he had campaigned against yeah. and won, you know, um, and then he pointed um, a dentist as uh, Secretary of Energy. The guy <laughs> knew nothing about energy policy. Um, so you know I, one of the great failings of, of Reagan was personnel. and uh, I, the biggest personnel failing was George H.W. Bush. Those guys, during eight years uh, in the White House had uh, lunch once a week and that's a lot of lunches Uh, and if – all those lunches, if Reagan couldn't figure out that that Bush didn't have an ideological bone in his body, that's Reagan's fault and um, Reagan was – it wasn't a – libertarian administration by any sense, uh, uh, stretch of the imagination. But my, he had some very, very good people working there. And the first thing Bush did when he took over, and, and Bush was never elected, Reagan was elected for a third term, uh, was fire them all. The only one he didn't fire that I'm aware of was Bruce Bartlett, who was in Treasury. and uh, But it kept a very low profile. And then. It, Turns out Bruce Bartlett's a statist, So,
1: <laughs> well, I wanted to ask, okay, you the letter that Reagan sent you. You said it was a thin skinned. What, what did it? Well, I'll, say? He, he says,
2: I'll call myself any damn thing I want oh, okay. to. Okay. <laughs> and and uh, and then he, uh, you know, I wrote back, and, and uh, you know, Sam Husband's wrote a letter and tried to calm the waters, and I, I think essentially uh, did. But I, as far as I know, Reagan never called himself a libertarian after that. And I'm not sure that that's a good thing. I probably should have just shut up and and uh,
0: tried to refine his libertarianism. But. So, when Murray Rothbard actually finally left Cato, there's this claim kicked around that you stole his shares of Cato. I Ed
2: Crane, or I think he he said Charles Koch did, but uh, they were in Wichita. You know, if you knew Murray, you didn't want to give him any papers. He, he was not. Very well organized, <laughs> but um, um, he uh, had actively worked to get rid of me, and it you know it, was, it didn't take long to discover that throw's actions were uh, initiated by Murray and Bill Evers, but basically Murray, and so that uh, that was kind of a you know undermining the the structure of the organization and and uh, and his attitude was that he wanted Cato to focus on appealing to the left and, and was engaged. You know, he considered himself, and so did Bill Evers, uh, Leninists. And part of that uh, strategy, the Leninist strategy is to lie, cheat, and steal if you have to. Whatever you say doesn't matter. I mean, if you're, if, if, the, if you're after a bad guy, then you just cut him down any way you could. And that's the way they operated. And, and Charles, I think, saw that. And so uh, we just said you know this is not working out so uh, the majority of shareholders voted to and that was well within the the bylaws of the organization the majority in fact everyone except murray of course voted to to take away his shares they weren't stolen
0: let's turn then to another future shareholder in Cato and the guy who I mean played a large role in really putting Cato on the map in Washington and that's Bill Niskanen.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: As it relies – it also has a connection to the Reagan administration too. Well,
2: yeah. He was, he was uh, on the Council of Economic Advisors and um, I had made a point to get to know him uh, when he was appointed to the, the council and um, walked into his office one day and it was the size of a football field. Uh, the, the, the old executive office building has these ridiculous huge offices and uh, you know Bill could care less about that sort of thing but uh, and I told him I would love to get you uh, to work at Cato uh, you know when you're done with the council or whatever and he uh, going into Reagan's second term uh, assumed that he would be because he was at the time acting, uh, chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors and he assumed that that when Reagan was reelected, he would be permanently the. the uh, and Reagan over, you know, didn't want him. I could see where his people would say, you know, is a loose cannon, Mr. President. We uh, we we have to be careful about that. We don't. So they wanted to keep him on the council, but they wouldn't make him uh, chairman. So he quit, and one day he. <laughs> There's a knock at the front door on two twenty-four Second Street, and I opened the door. That's how many people we had. I opened the door, <laughs> and uh, and uh, there's this uh, six foot five inch, uh, the uh, standing there, and he said, "Where where's my office?" And that's how he came to work at Cato.
1: Probably wasn't as big of office. It as was the,
2: the size of this room yeah. right in now. <laughs> yeah, it's about eight by ten, eight by or, 10 something. or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah and uh, he didn't complain, never complained at all. Uh, what, a, what a wonderful person he was. He was uh, you know, not a hardcore libertarian um, but he was very sound on, on basic principles. I always thought Bill was – took economics too seriously. I mean he'd read some book or some you know, journal article and, and that was the truth at that point. Uh, he did say it uh, to his credit. You know, he would ask why. Uh, why is uh, there a number to the right of the decimal point? And the answer was to prove that economists have a sense of humor, <laughs> <laughs> which is because really the number to the left of the decimal point also proves they have a sense of humor, in my view. But uh, beyond that, though, Bill was a man of tremendous integrity, and uh, his wife Kathy, uh, his widow has just been a stalwart uh, in all the difficulties kid faced uh, in recent years um and she remains on our board but um
1: but him joining was was a it was a huge
2: deal. thing it gave us credibility and uh and um so i'm i have nothing but uh, fond memories and admiration for Bill scan
1: let's let's talk a little bit about uh aside from the history. Uh, we, you wanted a think tank in the sort of AEI Brookings model. But in, in terms of your broader principles of Cato, your, your sort of founding idea of what Cato was – the attitude behind Cato, like the purity – was it – were we going to be a purity test? Were we going to work with the government more? And, and how, how did that work? in? so for example, you have like different rules for Cato. Like uh, there's no endowment for example. Is, is yeah, I,
2: I think endowed organizations tend to get lazy, and it's just human nature. If you know where the money's coming from, uh, you know it, it. You don't work as hard. Um, and and the another another element of that argument is that uh, people are giving you money to fight the battle. Why Why do you want to? If somebody said, "I'm going to give you a hundred million dollars as an endowment, and you're going to." uh you're going to make um you know back in the good old days five million dollars a year, and that will be what you 'll spend in the meantime you got a hundred million sitting on the sidelines uh and so in five years you will you know spend twenty five million dollars, but you could have been spending twenty five million a year for four years or five when you talk interest in uh so I always thought that, uh, that, I never tried to raise money for an endowment. I mean, you can consider the building we're in right now an endowment in the sense that Cato has, you know, there's, there's no mortgage payment, there's no interest payments, uh, no rent. Uh, Cato owns, uh, this place 100%. And, uh, it's such a beautiful facility. I mean, the uh, ideal, uh,
1: thing for a think tank. Now, what about uh, ideological purity tests? As another, what what is the Cato purity test? Because wow. that, that's something we get criticized. It kind of goes into the Murray story too. Well, I, how I, would you describe that that purity test, if there is one? I, well, no, there's well, I mean,
2: David Bowes and I uh, really always saw eye to eye on what Cato's philosophy was, which was libertarianism uh presented in a realistic uh framework as be as radical as you can be without being irrelevant to the debate and uh, sometimes you know you're too radical and sometimes you're not radical enough it's a constant uh, judgment call but i think Cato over the years has done a pretty damn good job of maintaining a you know a non-interventionist foreign policy as strict respect for civil liberties and, uh, and a, a rational approach to uh, economic liberty. Um, the work we've done on the Constitution has been uh, you know, path-breaking um, and free trade. I mean, Cato is – all of our positions are designed to enhance liberty. And, and, of course, when I say our, I'm no longer an employee of the Cato Institute. And uh, so I don't speak for the Cato Institute, but these are just my – Views and you're talking about our history.
0: What about funding sources? I mean, I know that I have been told by people that you know everything that I say and everything that my colleagues say is just we're you know parroting the corporate the overlords the beliefs of yeah the yeah. corporate overlords that that sign our paychecks or things oh, well, like that.
2: I'm very much in favor of funding uh, sources.
1: Uh, so, me too. Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. Okay.
2: <laughs> no. Uh, Cato, you know, early on started uh, uh, doing an analysis of corporate welfare, and I'll guarantee you that did not win us friends in the corporate community. We have never uh, taken positions that uh, that that uh, in order to appeal to some corporation or some special interest group. Uh, we've been very good about that, and and uh, you know, in the recent conflict, we got a lot of support from across the political spectrum and and one of the common uh, elements of that was that Cato sticks to their principles. Uh, So we've always wanted to be a part of the debate but pushing the debate toward liberty and whatever the area was. Uh, I mean it's a a shame that uh, more people on the right haven't been like Rand Paul for instance, really appalled at what the NSA is doing and – um, the IRS and uh, kind of the civil liberties abuses that are uh, just endemic to to this administration and I think to the Bush
1: administration. Now, of course we don't take uh, government money because that would be about as hypocritical as you could possibly be. No, but. the board
2: has a, a resolution that says we cannot take anything under $5 million.
1: <laughs> from the. Well, we could just suck the you know, I guess, well, I, That's a joke. Yes, you know. yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, but the uh, you have any favorite stories about some of the stories people like to tell about you around here, you denying or telling possible donations to take a hike because of what they wanted from us, like Fannie and Freddie for example.
2: Well, that's right. There's a guy – What's his name? One of the Buckley cousins or whatever had a senior – he was a public affairs guy for, for uh, Fannie Mae and he wrote me a letter uh, saying good news um, – uh, Fannie Mae is going to give you uh, give Cato one hundred thousand dollars, and you know back then that was a lot of money, and uh, I guess it still is, but it was it was right after Reagan was elected. uh, It was maybe eighty one or two, and Fannie Mae had been living off the left, off off Democratic, uh, um, you know, Democrats giving them money and and. uh, And now that there was this new conservative push, they had um, to—they wanted to cover their ass and cover their bases and and get give money to uh, groups that might be critical of them. And so I wrote back and said, you know, um," we—I first went to Bill Niskanen, who was our chairman. I said, Bill, this is this is government money, right? And he said, absolutely. So so I wrote back and I said, we don't take money from government. And uh, he was furious. How dare you say that? And, uh, you know, what do they have? 85% of the mortgage market is because they're such good workers or because there's an <laughs> applied government guarantee? So, yeah. Uh, yeah and we've done that. You know, people will come to us and say, I'll give you money if you do this or that. And we just say, no, that's not what we do. Um, now, there could be, you know, times when certainly when we see something that we want to work on and and there are... Can be corporate or or foundation interest, uh, and they come to us and say we want to help you with that, and that's fine. But we get such a small percentage of uh, the budget from corporations. I mean, it's under. It's under
1: five. It has gone under
0: three, under two percent at one point.
2: So you know they could take all that and it wouldn't affect
0: us at all. So Cato's been around now for almost forty years, Um, and so today, what do you see as the? the role that Cato plays in Washington, in the national policy debate?
2: Well, you know, people say this is the libertarian moment and I think it is and I think uh, that Cato deserves uh, a good portion of the, uh, uh, of the credit for, for that because everyone can see the failure of government on the left and on the right and uh, to me, the real secret to the libertarian moment are independence who are uh, put off by the the social conservatives and uh, and who also realize that this high tax and spend agenda of the left doesn't make any sense either. When has the government had some new big project that actually worked? I mean, the incompetence is just appalling. And uh, more and more Americans see that now. And so, uh, you know, my uh, friend John Malone, who uh, was on the board for 20 years or more, a uh, uh, you know, big businessman, uh, Liberty Media and uh, uh, big – in the cable industry. He used to say and quite seriously, the thing I like about uh, Cato is it's so moderate. It's in the middle and when you think about it, you can make that case. Uh, you, you know, you're socially tolerant which I think most Americans are. You believe in capitalism, but not crony capitalism, which you know a lot of a lot of independents are understand that distinction, and and they they'll say they don't like the Republicans because of the crony capitalism, which you know goes on. I mean, you know, Bill Clinton, of course, is a Democrat, but he's one of the great crony capitalists of our epoch, um, and so. Uh, I think that Cato is very well positioned. It's got it's got good leadership. It's got very very bright people who are committed uh, to this cause. It's such a for a libertarian such a great place to work because you have people and everyone loves to work here that if who's a libertarian uh, because it's you're surrounded by people who share your passion for liberty
1: and maintaining that. Uh that detached analysis, I mean, the thing that I really like about Cato, I mean, one of the many things I love about Cato, but but the fact that we are detached from the partisan struggle, which I think gives us at least some sort of imprimatur of – oh,
2: it of, does. Of, I mean – unbiased uh, at least. Yeah. You know, I, now that I don't work for Cato anymore, I can say that I think Heritage uh, made a horrible mistake when they decided to jump in bed with the Republican Party. Because what the Republicans needed was a conservative organization like, uh, like Heritage, which, you know, had very bright people and and still does and, uh, was run by a very competent guy, Ed Fulner. Uh, and, uh, yet the, you know, when, when, when George H.W. Bush was elected, uh, to, uh, to the White House, uh, Heritage acted like, you know, they, they took, they took, um, you know victory laps like this is wonderful we finally won and i'm looking at george h w bush and say, are you kidding me and that what 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 the gop needed was a conservative heritage foundation screaming at them for this, the the transgressions and the and the uh, lack of principle and, and they didn't get that they got cheerleaders and that was too bad but um
1: uh, so why but, do people think we're republican
2: well, I don't think I think the I think the sophisticated people in the media understand that we're not, and uh, uh, you know, Cato prides itself on being very quick to criticize either party, and we're just as critical of the GOP a, as as the Democrats. I mean, that said, the Democratic Party is really. Doesn't stand for anything good anymore. I mean, we talked earlier about uh, they don't, uh, you know, this this speech code stuff and uh, and their you know willingness to uh, intervene militarily for humanitarian reasons. God knows what other reasons because the Clinton Foundation may want to do something. <laughs> uh, you know, they're <laughs> hard to justify. I, it, Nat Hentoff, um, the great civil libertarian, who in the 20th century was the greatest defender of the First Amendment, uh, is just appalled at, at what's happened to the left uh, and he you know, comes from the left. Um, but Nat's a senior fellow with Cato now, so good for him.
0: When I tell people where I work, what I do, um, there's, there's often a question about what exactly is a think tank? What do they do? I mean people know there's you know they, they understand what like lobbying organizations are um, <clears throat> but and special interests and whatnot, but the role of that think tanks play in this whole process
2: well I, Cato is a true think tank because we're we're looking at problems confronting our society and trying to come up with solutions that uh entail more freedom and um uh, so Cato is a very principled organization that, that takes a philosophy. We don't claim to be value-free Cato has, has got a philosophy of libertarianism and there are good ways and bad ways of applying that philosophy to the problems of our day. Uh, but um, you know, I think Brookings is kind of like that except that their agenda is, is li- liberal, uh, contemporary liberal. Uh, and so they're more and 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 uh, uh, AEI under uh, Brooks is um, is uh, that way with a conservative approach. But I think think tanks are very important because they shouldn't be caught up with special interest groups or uh, any kind of political
1: party. So broadly speaking, as as we move into Cato's approaching the forty years and going forward, and libertarianism in general. We have things like Heritage which are really staking out on the red side and then Center for American Progress on the blue side and Cato sitting in the middle and maybe this libertarian movement. Are you generally optimistic for both A, the future of the country and B, the future of Cato?
2: I am optimistic about America. I think this is uh, such an incredible country and we were so fortunate to have all these dead white guys um, <laughs> put their mind to the … Uh, how do you create a free and prosperous society? And the uh, first time in human history, really, that it was spelled out so clearly. I think they would have been, they're very sophisticated people and they understood public choice and they understood the likelihood that special interests would get control of government and, and undermine the, what they were trying to do. They'd be surprised that it lasted as long as it did. But there's a renaissance of respect for the American Revolution now, and Cato is at the forefront of it intellectually. So I think it's uh, I think I think there is you know when 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 Reagan got elected, the establishment, the pro-government establishment on the left and the right, I think were shocked that there was this positive response from the American people to the way Reagan described, the, you know, this is a country that you don't have to be ashamed of. We have every reason to be proud of, of our heritage of liberty and the thoughtful initiatives that the uh, founders undertook to secure that liberty uh, and, and Americans said, damn right. And that uh, – the establishment was really uh, uh, surprised. But it's still there. It's still ingrained. You know, Hayek used to uh, talk about uh, cultural evolution and and how um, you have, you know, little things like a, a kid selling lemonade on a street corner is a sign that you live in a free society. I mean, it's probably illegal to do that now. But, <laughs> but uh, there are elements of our society just deeply ingrained in our culture that mean – uh, that means that we have a chance that that if we articulate a vision of liberty uh, that touches on those um, basic sentiments of American culture uh, you can succeed and uh, I you know I, the support for Rand Paul I think is uh, remarkable particularly given what a thin-skinned guy he turns out to be uh, but he's very smart I don't know if you guys saw the the filibuster he uh, did, but it was uh, remarkable. No notes. It was like a a college lecture in the Constitution and our work, you know, Roger Pallon has done and Ilya Shapiro now uh, to carve out a third way to go back to the original uh, concept of what the Constitution was for has been very important and there are a lot of Tea Party people that appreciate that and I think there are more people on the left now. Who understand the Constitution is there to protect our civil liberties. And, um, and we can we can turn this thing around, not least because the other side fails at every initiative they come up with.
0: Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, you can find us on Twitter at Free Thoughts Pod. That's Free Thoughts P-O-D. Free Thoughts is produced by Evan Banks and Mark McDaniel. To learn more, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.